at Exodus chapter 6. We have seen the beginning of the story of the Exodus and of God's intention to deliver his people and of how he has called Moses at the burning bush. Despite Moses' objections and uncertainties, God has insisted that he will do it and he has showed his power and his good intentions. And now we see in chapter 6, I'll be reading this morning, verses 2 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a, for possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, while I was still in the mission field in Asia, I had the privilege of taking part in one of the worst planned student retreats I have ever seen. Uh, the, the heart behind it was good. Wanting to practice delegation and, and teach some of the students in our fellowship how to be responsible for things, we entrusted them with the planning of our out-of-town retreat. Housing, food, everything. They had it in their responsibility. And you hope that when you trust someone to do something for you, that they're going to do it. They're going to follow through. Instead, we arrived at a hotel that was found at the last second at the lowest price, and it was uninhabitable by everyone's standards. So we ended up finding a friend of a friend who had an unfinished apartment just a cement block, basically, that could fit all 35 of us. And we took the blinds and curtains off the windows and used them as blankets on that cold night. Uh, we had arrived so late because the train tickets had not been purchased in a timely manner. We arrived so late that the restaurants that would take us without a reservation were all closed already. So we had cold ramen noodles for dinner. The next morning, we were planning to take a tour of the nearby scenic lake five miles away but somebody had forgotten to reserve the driver. So we walked five miles to a lake where someone had forgotten to purchase the boat tickets. So we walked around the lake. It was one catastrophe, catastrophe after another, leading those in charge to feel, if you want something done right, you just gotta do it yourself, don't you? Because when you trust someone to do something and it doesn't happen, 
you get angry, you get frustrated, and you start to wonder. Israel had this moment, this glimmer of hope when they were in Egypt because God had promised deliverance. He said He was going to do it. He promised them He would do it. And then Moses shows up and speaks to Pharaoh. And it gets worse. Things don't get better. Things don't improve. The promise of deliverance doesn't happen. It gets worse for them. Salvation isn't playing out the way that any of them expected. Moses himself is confused and frustrated. The people are hurting. The people are suffering. They're still enslaved. And maybe there's something in all that that we can understand. Maybe as we consider God's great promises to us, what He has told us He's going to do, we've trusted Him, He said He was going to do it, and yet it feels like we're eating cold ramen on a cold cement floor and walking five miles because it's just not playing out the way that we expected it to look. And we wonder, did God really, is He really doing what He said He's going to do? Is He following through on the job that He was given? Doesn't it make sense that, that if things are to go right, we should step in? We should be somehow responsible. Maybe it's not working because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. It is too easy for our understanding of salvation and of God Himself to reach a point where we see God as just a, a resource. The, the job is up to us. And, and God is there to step in and to help us, to give us maybe some of the things we need to do the job, but really it comes down to us to do the work. But the picture we're given in Scripture, and even here in Exodus chapter 6, is very different. The picture we're given is that from beginning to end, it's God. Salvation is of the Lord. And He will follow through on everything that He is committed to do, which should give us great confidence that it will be done, and it will be done well. Our role is to receive. Because of the, one of the things that we see here, we're going to see three different things about our relationship to salvation. And the first one is that salvation does not depend on your initiative. Salvation does not depend on your initiative. God begins this whole thing by reminding Moses of how this story started. It didn't start with the Israelites in Egypt. It started, verses 2 and 3, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord, which when you see Lord with all capital letters, that's a substitute for Yahweh, the, the divine name. God spoke to Moses and said, I'm Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. This is the first way that we see that it's God who is behind all of this. Abraham did not seek God. Abraham was minding his own business, worshiping false gods in another land, when God took the initiative and appeared to Abram and said, come follow me. Go to the land I will show you. I'm going to bless you. Isaac, Jacob, not seeking after God, yet God sought them and appeared to them and revealed himself to them. It's God who even begins the story. And not only does he reveal himself to them, but he also promises great things to them. Verse 4, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they weren't out there saying, God, hey, this is some great real estate out here. Can you give this to us? 
No, it was God who came up with the idea and God who made the promise, not just any promise, a covenant promise, which is a binding life or death commitment. So, so God begins by reminding Moses that, that he is the God who seeks us out and promises us blessings that we, we did not even imagine. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, no eye has seen no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. God has promised us things that we didn't come up with. We're not out there asking for the things that God is planning for us. But it doesn't end there. He's not just the one who seeks us out and promises us great things, but He commits Himself to follow through on those things. We don't have to bug Him. Hey, hey didn't you say, didn't you promise that this would happen? Where are you, God? No, he commits himself. It's not up to us reminding him, not us to us to pressure him or hold his feet to the fire. It's God who commits to follow through us. As he reminds us, verses 6 through 8, look at, I've just kind of condensed some of the language so you can see the point here. Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That's really good news for the Israelites in Egypt. Because who's responsible to make sure that this all works out right? Who's going to give them the land? Who's going to deliver them? Who's the one that's going to make it happen? It's the Lord. It's not them. It's not their job to make it happen. That's really good news to the Israelites in Egypt, that God has made promises and he is fully committed to keeping them. But what does that mean to us? I would suggest, even looking at this passage, that it means much the same. In verse 5, we see how God works. He says, I have remembered my covenant. God's covenants are his binding promises where, where he initiates a commitment that he makes to his people. His idea, his promise his commitment, and from beginning to end, it's God that ensures that his covenant is fulfilled. What the covenant promises of God show us is that God knows our need, and he knows the solution, and he is fully committed to carrying it out. As we hear in Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began that good work, God began the good work in you. He's the one that's going to carry it to completion. It's not like God picked you up out of the dirt, dusted you off, made you look a little bit more presentable, gave you a fresh set of clothes and said, as you were, good luck, carry on, hope to see you at the end. No. He who started the work, of making you a new creation, making you a child of God, of glorifying you, he who began that work is going to complete the work. It's like if you, if you were to ever evaluate me from the standpoint of someone who does home projects and woodworking, you would find just a few things nailed together in my garage that never reached any point of recognizability. You know, or like a child with a room full of Legos that they're just kind of like half created into things and then just abandoned. Okay, that's an abandoned project. It does not exist in God's kingdom. God doesn't give up. He doesn't stop working with you. He doesn't say, yeah, I kind of got tired of that and moved on to the next thing. It's not how he works. 
So because it's God who began the work, we can be confident that it will not falter. It will not be left incomplete. We didn't beg for him to come along and help. He initiated. And we don't need to pressure him to stay until the end because he finishes what he starts. He's got the end in mind when he begins. Child of God, there is incredible peace and comfort in that. Knowing that it's not up to you to fret and stress about whether things will work out. Because the one who is at work has promised that he will finish. Now, they may not work out in the way you expected. The Israelites are certainly experiencing that. Hey, this deliverance, Moses, not working so great right now. Things have gotten worse. Now, what God has promised to do in your life may not be what you wanted him to do in your life. And it may not look the way you want it to look or follow the trajectory you wanted, but it's not your job to set the course. You're not the one who started it. You didn't write the script. God came in and started it. And he's the one that will bring it to completion. The psalmist puts it this way, though I walk in the midst of trouble, this is Psalm 138, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. What he has started, he will finish. Find peace in that, people of God. Find comfort in that. And find in that the boldness to continue to follow the path that he has put before you. Because it is a path that leads to exactly where God wants you to go. Salvation does not depend on your initiative. The next thing I want us to see is that salvation also doesn't depend on your belief. You think that the news that God is committed to their salvation would have been great news and well received by the Israelites. That it would be inspiring that God is committed. And he says, I'm going to do it, people. But look how they receive it in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, if you've been with us lately in the past few weeks, you probably remember that earlier on, God had promised to Moses that when he spoke, the people would listen. And then we saw in chapter 4, verse 30 through 31, we ended our sermon a couple weeks ago with this, this beautiful vision that, that Aaron spoke the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and he did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we ended with that vision in mind of, of the people of God so excited as they looked forward to the beautiful things that God had promised, that they were worshiping in faith for what God had not done yet. Wasn't that beautiful? And, and we talked about how we need to look ahead to the good things God has promised, and we worship in faith. And now, chapter 6, they, they don't even believe anymore. So what do we have here? Is this one of those famous uh, alleged contradictions in the Bible that don't really exist where, you know, it says one thing and then it says another. No, it's not that because in between believing in chapter four and not believing in chapter six, what comes in between chapter four and chapter six? Thank you. Chapter five. Nobody in the first service got that. Okay. <laughs> not a trick question. It's, it's just simple math. We've got a math teacher over here. Okay. 
And what happened in chapter 5 we saw last week was Moses did go to Pharaoh. Moses did share the message of deliverance and told Pharaoh, hey, Yahweh says it's time to let the people go. And Pharaoh said, don't know him, haven't heard of him, really don't care. In fact, sounds like you guys are getting lazy. Time to work harder. And they pressed the people even harder and punished them and afflicted them even more so that the message of deliverance only led to greater suffering. That's why they've stopped believing. That's why in chapter 6, because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery, the message that was supposed to be good news just agitates their affliction. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. A broken spirit under the harsh circumstances that follow the good news. You've heard the good news. You've heard of the good promises of God. You maybe even rejoice. You, you go to Bible study or community group or in worship and you, you rejoice and you sing and you hear a good message and you're inspired and you're stirred up or you're just reading God's word and it's, it's, it's touching your heart and you hear the good news and you rejoice and then, then, then the reality sets in of what you're facing at work or at home or you get a phone call that breaks your spirit or, or you check your bank balance and you don't have enough for the next payments. The, the harsh reality can break our spirit. But even worse, that's our initial condition. When the gospel comes to us in our unbelief, we do not believe the gospel message because of the harsh slavery and a broken spirit. One of the worst effects of sin is that it makes us unable to even believe the message of salvation. That's one of the worst effects of sin. It makes us unable to believe the message of salvation. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, if people aren't believing the good news, it's veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world has, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is what we mean when we use that phrase total depravity. That every area of our life is touched and affected and, and harmed by sin. It's not that our bodies, our flesh is sinful, but our spirits are good and righteous. It's not that our minds are clear, but our, our emotions are messed up. No, our whole being is broken by sin. So that our capacity to see and to understand and believe the truth it is, is not even there. Which is why when Paul speaks of the ministry of the gospel later in 2 Corinthians 10, he says that our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, are not of the flesh. We're not talking swords and spears and guns here. But instead we're talking about weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds. What kind of strongholds? Arguments. We destroy arguments in every lofty position raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our ability to see and apprehend the truth is captive because of sin. And it needs to be recaptured and made right. But here's the good news. God's salvation doesn't depend on your belief. The fact that you don't believe the gospel, that someone doesn't believe the gospel, does not rob the gospel of its power. Whenever I hear people talking that way as if, as if we have to muster up enough belief or enough faith so that God can save, it, it reminds me of, of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. 
You know, if you've ever seen that kids movie, like, okay, kids, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. If, if, if you don't believe, then Tinkerbell will lose her power. But if you clap your hands, Tinkerbell will get her power back. Okay, that's cute for a kid's story. But that's not how God works. God is not weakened by your lack of faith. God is not bound by your unbelief. No, his, his plan moves forward in spite of the unbelief of the people. Here in Exodus, as the people don't even believe the good news anymore, there's no stopping and recalibrating. There's no God saying, oh man, it's time to switch to another plan. I don't know what I'm going to do if they don't believe it. It's like it doesn't even happen. He just moves on and says, no, we're, we're, everything's full steam ahead. Because I don't need the people to believe I'm going to save them in order for me to actually save them. The lesson here is that how strongly we believe is not as important as how strong is the one that we believe in. I need you to hear that. If you were tuning out, tune back in for a moment. How strongly we believe is not as important as how strong is the one that we believe in. The one on the airplane who is clutching the armrests and is convinced that they're not going to make it to their destination and they're terrified and they're shaking and they're anxious sitting next to the one who is sound asleep and not a care in the world and is like, yeah, I do this all the time. They're both equally safe if the plane is trustworthy, right? Just because one believes and the other doesn't doesn't mean they're going to have different outcomes. They're both going to land just the same. It doesn't matter that one believed and one did not. The level of your faith in God does not add or remove strength from God. It does not open doors that are stuck for God unless you have enough belief to make Him work. So does that mean that faith is inconsequential? It's irrelevant? It doesn't matter? No, to say that, we'd have to ignore vast chunks of Scripture what it does mean is this, though our faith does not make God work, our faith is the evidence that God has already worked in us. Our faith doesn't make God work. However, when we have faith, it is evidence that God has already worked in us. Remember when Paul said that those who don't believe, their minds have been blinded so they can't believe, they can't see the gospel? Look how he resolves that two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. The God who said, let there be light when there was nothing but darkness. The God who spoke light into existence did the same thing in our hearts. He shone in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how belief happens. Not through us mustering up enough faith to make God work, but through God stepping in and saying, let there be light where there is now darkness. God's salvation does not depend on your belief because your belief is itself an act of God. A gift, a product, a result of the salvation that he gives. And so let me speak a word to those that might be doubting. Those in this room who, whether you call yourself Christian or not, you who are doubting, you who are uncertain, who don't know what to make of what God has said, this puts you in good company. You are in the company of John the Baptist. You were in the company of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You were in the company of Mary Magdalene at the tomb, of the disciples throughout much of their ministry, of Elijah and so many others who, who just didn't believe for a time, who wondered, who weren't certain, 
And none of that stopped God from working, even through them. Your doubts do not rob God of his power. He is mighty to save and he will deliver despite the unbelief of his people. Let me also speak a word to those here who might love or care for someone who is far from God, someone who does not believe. Many of us have someone like that in our lives. No one is so strong in their unbelief that God cannot transform them that God cannot speak light into their darkness. Their lack of belief due to a broken spirit and harsh slavery to sin, God still delivers in spite of that. Your prayers are not in vain, for God is still mighty to save. And your salvation and your loved one's salvation does not depend on your initiative, and it does not depend on your belief or theirs. And lastly, salvation does not depend on your response. After committing himself to saving his people, and despite their unbelief, the next thing we have might surprise us. Rather than reckon with the unbelief of the people, God tells Moses and Aaron to get back on track and do what they're supposed to be doing. Go talk to Pharaoh. It doesn't dwell on the problem before them. It dwells on the problem of Pharaoh. Because salvation doesn't depend on your response. It doesn't matter how the people are responding. That's not what's going to solve their problem. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to Moses, All right, whatever's going on over here, you go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Just reminds him what he's supposed to be doing, what he told him to do two chapters ago. Let's stay on track, Moses. That's what matters. And then Moses objects a little which we saw also at the burning bush. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people aren't listening to me. You, you think Moses is going to listen to me when the people won't listen to me? I'm not really good at this, God. I, I reassert my suggestion that you find someone else. This is the Rob translation of verse 12. I know it's not what's on the screen. And despite the people's unbelief, and despite Moses' fear and hesitation and objections, God just says, no, go to Pharaoh. Verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What's going on here? Why does it just kind of skip over the fact that the people don't even listen and don't believe? And they're so broken in their spirit that they can't even hear this message of salvation. Does God not care? Is he ignorant? Actually, it's, it's far from that. God sees with laser-sharp focus what the real need is. All the problems that people face, the people of Israel, their despair, their unbelief, their fear, it all stems from a deeper root, their slavery to Pharaoh. And God is intent on addressing the real, true problem that they face and not the stuff on the surface that's a result of the deeper problem. God tells Moses, Set everything aside and go talk to Pharaoh because that's where the problem is. That's where the solution lies. Once we solve that, all will be well. And so people of God, the same is true for us today. Many of the problems that we experience and face are symptoms of a deeper sickness. And until that sickness is cured, we will never improve. I'm using language of sickness and, and symptoms here uh, intentionally. I've, imagine with me a, a, 
a fictional scenario where a man goes into a doctor's office, uh, which you know it's got to be bad if he's finally going to the doctor, and, and he says, doctor, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm having some pain. I mean, I'm having some trouble walking, too. The doctor just, you know, asks him some questions, gives him some medicine for the pain, gives him a little something to help him sleep, gives him a cane to help him walk. He goes home. A few days later, he comes back in the doctor's office. He's like, I still, I'm still having pain, still hard to sleep, still having trouble walking, but now I've got a fever, I've got some swelling, uh, he's got some problems. You know, so the doctor runs some more tests, gives him some more medicine, and he's about to send him off. And the man says, by the way, while I'm here, you know, I stepped on a nail a few weeks ago and it's still in my foot. Do you think you could help me get that out too? Okay, what was the man's real problem? The nail in his foot, causing pain, causing sleeplessness, trouble walking, swelling, fever. All of those were symptoms of one problem that was being neglected. We can go about treating and trying to fix every broken marriage we encounter, all the lonely lives, addictions, fears about money, depression, anxiety, you name it. We can, we can go after all those things, and we should, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work, we should be trying to help with those things. But all of them, all of them are symptoms. Symptoms of a deeper disease. One that needs to be fixed or everything else we do is just temporary and incomplete. It doesn't get to the real problem. People could respond to the message of deliverance that Moses gave. They could be so excited, they could say, all right, with this hypothetical scenario, let's say that instead of disbelieving, they believed Moses, and they get excited, and they pack up their bags, and one big body of them just decides to head on out of Egypt. How's that going to work? What's going to happen as soon as they try to leave Egypt? What's Pharaoh going to do? Pharaoh's going to stop them, right? Pharaoh and his armies are going to come in and say, eh, 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 eh. You stay right where you're at. Until the Pharaoh problem is solved, their response is worthless. They can be excited and have all the good intentions they want, but they haven't solved the real problem. For us, all of our diligence, all of our effort, all our good hard work is good, but it cannot do what only God can do. Jesus pointed this out in Mark 2 when they brought a man to him. Uh, many were gathered in a house, and it was so crowded, no room, not even at the door. Jesus is preaching the word, and some friends come bringing a paralytic man carried by four men. They could not get near to Jesus because of the crowd, so they climb up on the roof, they remove the stuff from the roof, and having made an opening, they, they lower the bed down to Jesus where the paralytic lay. And then Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, and, and every reader is expecting the next words to be, get up and walk. Because that's obviously his problem. But instead, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at the man and says, I know what the real problem is. I could make you walk and you will still be far from God and lost forever. But if your sins are forgiven, I have, I have truly healed what needs to be healed. Jesus diagnosed the real problem. Success for Moses and the people of God was not measured by their response but rather, has the real problem been solved? For Israel, the most important thing was not to make them feel free, not to get them on board with this. The most important thing was to defeat Pharaoh. 
Otherwise, every other response of theirs was in vain. And for you and for me, our problem is described in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Your problem and the problem of every person you meet is dead in sin, which expresses as frustrated living and disobedient living deserving of the wrath of God. And the solution to that problem is not to make someone morally a little bit better. That solves nothing. That's putting makeup on the corpse of one who is dead in sin to make it look a little more alive. No weekend at Bernie's moving their arms around can solve the problem of being dead in sin. The solution instead is what God shows us the Holy Spirit gives us in the next verses, Ephesians 2, 4-6. through 6. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For us and for all God's people, the good news of the gospel is that our biggest problem... Our deepest need has been completely taken care of by Jesus Christ. That gives us great hope that everything else will be made right as well. The problem that afflicts us and from which all of our other problems come, that problem has been solved. Once that healing is cared for, the fever goes away, the swelling goes away, the pain goes away, the symptoms disappear once healing has occurred at the deepest point where the wound is. You might be observing that today's sermon is a little light on application. I haven't told you to do much of anything yet, have I? I'll own that. Because the point of this passage is that what you need to do has already been done in Christ. Now there are implications of that, applications you could live out for sure, but our passage this morning mostly points towards our role as receivers of so great a salvation. If you're familiar with the story of Sleeping Beauty, okay, what's she famous for? Sleeping, okay. In, in the movie version, she has 18 lines. They named a movie after her. She has 18 lines. She spends much of the movie sleeping, of course, we would expect. And what is it that saves her from that dreadful condition? A kiss, true love's kiss, right? Prince Philip in the movie has to come and kiss her. But that's not actually what solves the problem. This is what's great, and I, I think actually this story is a, is a beautiful Christian analogy of salvation because before, and it's not just Sleeping Beauty that's asleep, it's the whole kingdom has been put to sleep and waiting to be rescued. They can do nothing about it. They are helpless to do anything about it. They're, they're incapable. They're not seeking help. They're not calling out for help, and they can do nothing. But the prince goes off to defeat Maleficent, the one who has put Sleeping Beauty in the whole kingdom in this dreadful situation. And the prince has to do battle against the dragon, the great beast. And only when he has finished doing that can he come and bring salvation. Salvation that nobody asked for, nobody could speak up for, nobody could respond to or believe in. Child of God, that is what has happened to you. 
You who were dead in your sins and your transgressions were not crying out for a Savior. And His power, His slaying of the beast that was against you was not because you believed Him enough. Sleeping Beauty was not cheering on the prince as he fought the dragon. She was sleeping. Okay, she did nothing. Nothing for her salvation. She received it. You were worse than asleep. You were dead in your sins. You were enslaved to the enemy and your salvation did not and does not depend on your initiative, on your belief, or your response. It is God from beginning to end. Now, there is no lack of application for that. Trust in Him. Don't trust in anything else to cure what's wrong with you. Look to the deeper problem. Praise Him and not other things. Point others towards Him instead of other things. And as we're about to sing in a moment, let good and kindreds go this mortal life also because He is our mighty fortress he has defeated our ancient foe. He has, he has taken down Pharaoh that we might be free even when we didn't think he could do it or would do it. And his kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel message that you are saved not with any help or input from you, but by the grace and power of God which frees you to live freely going forth. Let us praise him for that. Our gracious God, our mighty fortress, Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, you have rescued us. We were ignorant. We were unbelieving. Why then would we think that now you need our faith? You need our effort. You have saved us. You will save us. Teach us to live lives of faithful joy in response to that. By your Spirit, Move in our hearts to believe these things. Bring light to where there is darkness and empower us to live as people who've been freed from slavery, who've received the message of deliverance and who are on the journey to receiving it in full. Despite what we see, despite what we experience, our ancient foe is defeated and you reign forever. We thank you for that in our Savior's name.